Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and if you haven't followed us on Twitter yet, what are you waiting for? You can make up for that small personal failing by following us at PolicyCast and let us know what you think about the show. Good or bad, we can take it. Now, if you've ever taken a taxi, you know that the experience can often leave something to be desired. A few years ago, a number of startups tried to change that by creating smartphone apps that can summon a car to your location. Chief among these startups was Uber, which has grown exponentially from its start just a few years ago. That growth hasn't come without controversy, though, as the companies face pushback from legal authorities at every level of government, not to mention the ire it's drawn from taxi drivers and medallion owners. Today we're joined by Brian Wirth, a former aide to House Majority Whip Kevin McCarthy, who left the Hill earlier this year to join Uber as their federal public policy lead. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So uh, Uber started as a service that essentially you could order a town car from from your app on a smartphone. Um, it's morphed and changed a little bit since then. I mean, you offer helicopter rides every <laughs> once in a while. and um, But the biggest part of Uber, I feel like at this point, is UberX, in which people can essentially um, sign up to give rides in their personal cars. Correct. Um, can you explain what that service is all about, just for people who aren't may not be familiar? Sure, sure. UberX is, uh, as you said, it's uh, you or me with our own my own car, um, and I can basically once I pass a certain set of criteria with Uber, I have to go through a background check. I have to prove that I have insurance. My car has to meet safety standards. Um, I'd basically get an app or a phone that has the Uber app on it, so the transaction can take place, uh, and I could free give people a ride when I turn that app on. You know, the customer would see my car on the phone on their phone when they turn the uber app on and then i could go pick them up and give them a ride and you know uber is a platform between the two things so no drivers employed by uber we look at both the drivers and the riders as customers mm-hmm. of uber we're the platform that connects the two things so you know if i'm an uber x driver and you're the customer uh, uber connects the two of us uh, the payment comes through to me and you know i can drive the upside of uber x's uh you know flexibility for the person who wants to drive it could be uh, someone who just wants to drive a couple hours a day it could be someone who wants to drive 40 hours a week mm-hmm. and everywhere in between. Uh, I've had an UberX driver who she picked me up. Her husband came home from work at the end of the day. He stays home with the kids. She goes out and hits the rush hour for two hours a day, hits mm-hmm. the rush hour, makes a little extra money, and then goes home. And that's the extent of her you know, Uber experience. But that's what meets her needs and how she wants to do it. So the flexibility, that's what's really, I think, exciting for and entices people to come and do it. Right. So... It seems like uh, it, what's particularly interesting about Uber is that with its you know fast growth, mm-hmm. uh, it has faced these challenges on every level you know uh, local, state, federal, even international sure. um, to the service itself. How do you, as a company, act, how do you equip yourself for that kind of like battle on so many fronts? Uh, there's certainly a challenge for that, you know, <laughs> as as the company's grown uh, so quickly and around the world. Uh, we're in more than 200 cities now. Um, 43 countries or six continents. Um, so, I mean, it's it, it's certainly challenging, but it's something where, you know, we you have local people that work for Uber. Uh, so in Germany, you have Germans working for Uber, and France, you got French people working for Uber, and you go down to Texas, you got Texans down there working with the Texas, the government in Texas. So it's, um, you know, and we just try to, we go to local officials and say, you know, here's our service, it's up and running. You have citizens in your city, town, state that like it, um, you know, and try to work with them that way but it's uh well that's actually an interesting thing about uber is that when you look at uh, a lot of the expansion efforts now you know uber has grown from a small startup just a few years ago to being worth over valued at over 17 billion i think at this point 
Um, and a lot of that has come because of fast expansion. A lot of the times that's because Uber's going into communities where really the regulation, it's essentially skirting the regulations that are in place for taxi services, hackney services, mm-hmm. and even town car services. Um, and in many ways, those regulations might be outdated and need to be updated. But sometimes, as you said, you know, you're going in first and then right. trying to work with the, commu- the, the community afterwards to work with it. What's the reasoning behind doing that? Well, for, uh, you know, I think order? you made the point that the regulations are outdated. And I wouldn't say they usually are. They always are because almost all, all those regulations were made before the almost most of them before the advent of the Internet because they were regulating cabs and for hire transportation probably for the past 30, 40 longer mm-hmm. um, years. So before the internet, and certainly before uh, the advent of the smartphone. So we're offering something that's not even in that regulatory code. The the taxi and limo regulations they have apply to taxis and limos because those are people that own the cars, they employ the drivers. And that's not what this is. Again, I mean, this is a platform that's in the middle. And I think there's demand out there from consumers for this. And mm-hmm. I think when we show that demand, then that helps the local regulatory entity or the government see what this product is, see their citizens want it, and say, okay, this is something we ought to, um, you know, work with Uber on. We we don't look to skirt anything, and I don't think we do skirt anything, but we don't certainly don't look to do so, and we don't want to be unregulated. I mean, we want to, you know, we think we add great value to the communities we're in, mm-hmm. uh, both on the consumer and the uh, both on the consumer and the employment side. We had great value to those communities, so we want to be part of those communities, and not, uh, you know, we're not looking to get around anything. Mm-hmm. So, what kind of regulations do you look to pursue in that regard? Sure, and, I, and I, so, I mean, there's, I think, there's safety regulations, which is obviously the most important role for any government to protect its citizens. So, um, you know, safety regulations deal with background checks. We have, you know, our background checks are federal, state, local background checks that go back seven years. Um, you know, there's safety inspections on the car. A lot of jurisdictions have. You know, safety inspections your car has to do every year, every two years. Those are the kind of things that we we build into our own model now to be an Uber X driver. You have to pass those safety inspections. You got to have insurance. We have commercial insurance on top of um, you know the insurance that the Uber X drivers have. These are all internal policies that correct. You have. We already have them, right? right. Yeah, I mean, we're you know this isn't uh, we're not just handing out phones to people and letting them <laughs> letting them drive the car. Right. I mean, this is people have to pass certain criteria um, to be an Uber partner. So, so how can, uh, you know, certainly at the local level, how can governments ensure that that is all um, to a standard that they deem, um, you know, necessary for the protection of their sure. citizens? Well, I think that's the conversation you have then with the local government is mm-hmm. you can say, look, here's what we're doing. Here's, you know, what are the standards you want to meet? I mean, it's, those are all safety standards for, to right. protect the consumer at the end of the day. And, and it's a lot of ways to protect the driver, too. And I would assume those are the same goal that the, the government has the same goal as Uber in that sense. Um, so it should be a matter of just marrying those things up, I think. Right. Um, you know, because again, we have the same goal, and I think where we crosswise a lot of times is the local regulatory body um, has been is a lot of times made up of cab industry people and limo industry people, and what they're looking to do is not the safety of the consumer, but they're looking to protect and insulate themselves from right. competition. Cabs, uh, cab licensing, the medallions you mentioned are a lot of times that system set up um, to basically keep out competition in a lot of ways and protect that incumbent industry and. Um, you know, they look for things like minimum fares. Uh, you know, there's requirements in some cities. If you got a private car instead of a taxi, there's a minimum fare of $150 in some cities. There's a minimum wait time of three hours. Right. When you, between them, it's absurd. The car could be right around the corner, and the law says they have to wait three hours before they can come pick you up. That's That doesn't benefit the consumer in any way, certainly. 
right. uh, and is designed rather to protect an incumbent industry. So how do you decide when you're going into expanding into a new community how you're going to engage? I mean, I understand trying to, uh, you know, build some demand within the community mm-hmm. to show that it's valued, but you can see some differences where in Portland, Oregon, Uber went to the government there and said, well, can we operate? But then you look at uh, like Montgomery County, Maryland, where you just went in, started sure. operating, and then the county came out, I think, re- just recently and said, well, you can't do that. You have to follow the taxi regulations. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's something in a lot of ways you do it by do it by feel in some ways. We have, you know, we have people that deal with community operations and business operations at Uber, and these are the guys on the ground in these cities or in these states. Um, they're talking to community leaders, they're talking to business leaders, and they get a feel for what it's like there. I mean, what we don't want to do, we want this to work in every city, so we're not looking to go in and pick big fights with people. So we try to come up with the, the you know, the best way to move forward with that. And I think sometimes that's that's just going in and launching. Um, and other times, like in Portland, it's it, it's going to take a little more work. Um, you know, we've launched in Eugene and Salem in Oregon, and we're you know we're running there. So. Um, and every community responds to this in different ways. Some are more kind of forward thinking and they can see the potential for this and others, um, you know, you have incumbent industries that are a little more entrenched and it takes a little more work to convince folks, um, you know, this is something that's a, that, that they ought to kind of, you know, get with the program a little bit and see, see what the future is here and, and get on board with it. Sure. So you are the federal public policy lead. Now, we always hear about these, you know, mm-hmm. state, local, um, you know, takes on the Uber expansions sure. and all of that. What is the federal uh, angle on, on Uber's operations? Sure. Well, right now, um, you know, I knock on the knock on wood here. There's no uh, no massive federal crisis yet. The federal government hasn't tried to shut us down or make us comply with any um, commercial driver's license regs or anything like that. So, um, you know, God willing, that, that fight doesn't come for, come for a while. But, uh, you know, I think it's something where we want to look at now that the company is national. Um, there's certainly an interstate commerce nexus to what we do. I mean, I use the same Uber app. All I did was open it when I landed at Logan yesterday and it was the same Uber and it's the same if I fly out to San Francisco or go down to Dallas. Um, so, you know, there's certainly an interstate commerce nexus here. Uh, but I think some of what the federal government does, you know, you have an entity like the Federal Trade Commission that's tasked with um, making sure there's, you know, competition uh, is viable for consumers and there's competitive options out there for them. And I think, uh, you know, when we talk to someone like the FTC, look at what some of these cities are doing where they're closed out. Um, you know, they've closed out options for their consumers, whether it's Uber or someone else. You have these incumbent interests in the taxi and limo industry that are uh, preventing, uh, you know, their citizens from getting uh, the services they want. The city of Miami Beach down in Florida uh, actually sent a formal notice to the FTC asking for um, them to look into what Miami-Dade County was doing to um, keep Uber, you know, Uber and other companies like that out of Miami-Dade County. I mean, the city of Miami Beach said, "Hey, we we'd like to have this here, but the county's blocking this." And the you know the federal government has a role here, right. um, you know, in enforcing. You know, open competition. Medallions are something of a granted monopoly from from a local government. Um, they're giving you know a, a certain number of medallions out, and you have to meet some regulations to hit it. Isn't uh, it incumbent on the government to protect what they've kind of guaranteed through the medallion system? Well, I mean, for them, they don't give out the medallions; they auction them off for a lot of money. So, Exa- it's, well, <laughs> well <laughs> right. exactly that right. goes to my point. Right, sure, bit. and I think that's something where. It, you know, the government's created a system that doesn't work. I mean, I, you know, and if you're asking me whether they need to make those people who bought those medallions whole mm-hmm. in some capacity, I think that's a different question than whether you need to um, stifle innovations like Uber. I mean, those are two separate things. The government created the one problem with their medallion system where 
you have cities where you barely have any more cab medallions than you had 50 years ago, which is it's it's absurd. I mean, that's the reason Uber started because you can't get a cab in, can't get a cab in San Francisco because there's not enough of them. They have the same amount of cabs they had 50 years ago, and the government's created this system that just flat out doesn't work. I mean, anyone would agree with it. Um, I mean, the, the cab drivers themselves would probably agree with it. And most medallions, in fact, are owned by corporations. They're not owned by you know, it's not you and me each going out and buying our own medallion and then working hard to pay that off like a mortgage. Mm-hmm. It's big corporations that own the medallions and they lease them out to people. Um, so if it, whether the government needs to make them whole or not, I don't know, but I don't, that doesn't seem doing one thing that doesn't work. doesn't seem to be a good reason to continue to deny your uh, citizens or customers a, an opportunity. Fair enough. Now, uh, I mentioned all the levels that you you're fighting at international level is one that just is, is very relevant right. where, uh, Germany recently had a court issue uh, sure. injunction against Uber right. operating. Now, again, Uber's reaction was, I believe, to cut fares by 30% to increase ridership. Um, that's an interesting uh, take. How do you deal with that kind of... Uh, well, you know, I mean, I think the interesting thing about that is we've seen since that court ruling, uh, which is earlier this week, um, our <laughs> signups have gone up 590% mm-hmm. in Germany since the court uh, ruled against Uber. No uh, no uh, publicity is bad publicity? or <laughs> Well, I think it's more of, uh, you know, you see what the consuming public wants, right? I mean, they're showing their, uh, and this happened when the taxis went on strike in London. I mean, uh, you know, signups went up by like 800% the day of that strike. Mm-hmm. And this did the same thing in D.C. when they went on strike. I mean, the customers are showing, they're voting with their, for lack of a better term, they vote with their wallet, right? We all do when we make consumer decisions. And that's what's happening in Germany. I mean, I think we're still appealing this through a legal process, and uh, we don't think this matter is resolved. But I think the citizens in Germany are showing, you know, what they want. And in any, especially in democratically elected governments, the elected officials have to pay attention to that. Sure. Well, Brian Worth, thank you so much for being on Thanks Policy for me. today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast.